April Vokey, and you're listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. For this week's episode of Anchored, I went back through the archives of a television show I used to host. While sifting through files, I found one of my favorite interviews that never made it to air. It's a fascinating discussion with author and salmon aficionado, Topher Brown. We recorded this conversation six years ago on the Miramichi River in New Brunswick. He and I discuss how fly size selection relates to the speed of water, how the barometer affects salmon and steelhead, as well as water temperature, DNA, thyroxin levels, and if fish are more likely to bite when the water is rising or dropping. So why don't we start off with who you are and what it is that you do. Uh, I'm Topher Brown and I'm a writer and I've written a couple of books, one on called Atlantic Salmon Magic, another smaller book on fly time called 100 Best Flies for Atlantic Salmon and uh, working on a third book right now on spay casting. So that will hopefully be out uh, in the next couple of years. And uh, I do a fair amount of instruction. Uh, spay casting instruction, uh, week-long schools, as well as individual instruction, and I work with uh, several manufacturers. I have read your Atlantic Salmon Magic mm-hmm. book, and it's actually been an amazing book for me in this project. Oh, good. You have helped to mentor me more than you know. So I did call you a few months back That's asking right. for some help and some assistance with a reading list, and the reading list that you provided me uh, I, I went out and bought every single one of those books. Oh, dear me. Yeah, and I'm slowly getting through them. Yeah. And there's been a lot of things that I've wanted to ask you while I've been here, mm-hmm. but you weren't here. I mean, you just got here yesterday. That's right, yeah. Now that I've got you here, I want to ask you these Sounds questions. Sounds good. Fire away. Okay, so why don't we start off with water temperature. When you and I had spoke, I bought Richard Waddington's book, mm-hmm. Salmon Fishing, mm-hmm. and he, of course, piqued my interest on fish behavior in relation to water temperature. And I started to carry a thermometer with me, and I mean, at this point now, I can put my hand in the water and basically tell you what the temperature is. And I've been asking all these biologists and all these people the, what their view is on his theory mm-hmm. in when, whether or not Atlantic salmon do make a change at 52 degrees, if, mm-hmm. if they do start to behave different, and if oxygen content is what causes them to stir. And you and I have spoke a little bit about this. Can you go ahead and tell me what your findings are with Atlantic salmon and how they behave in relation to the water temperature? So Atlantic salmon with regards to the water temperature, I think water temperature is definitely important. Uh, Waddington described 48 degrees as sort of a watershed point, below which you would fish a sinking line and above which you would consider a floating line. And, uh, and I think that holds up pretty well. The, um, the oxygen theory that he had has been, I, think it's, I don't think it's unimportant, but there are other issues with regards to the biology of the fish which are more important. Uh, most specifically, what their thyroxine levels are, what, what's going on with their hormones based on water levels, where they are in their migration, how long they've been in the, uh, the river, and uh, other issues like that. So I think, I think Waddington was really important because he, 
identified that temperature is a critical component of fishing. And when you talk to biologists, they're not necessarily relating fish behavior to taking behavior, because they're not really fishing. But if you overlay what we know about cold-blooded fish in general, um, and fish are cold-blooded, so very cold water does have an effect on their metabolism. And so does very warm weather water. So there's a, there's, a, there's a window in there inside of which you can expect reasonable fishing. The other sort of wrinkle or fly in the ointment is that different strains of fish react differently to different temperatures. So we're here on the Miramichi today, or the, the Canes River, which is a tributary of the Miramichi. These fish are particularly well adapted to warm water. So they tolerate a much higher temperature than some of the fish that I fish for on the gas bay, for example. But why are they more tolerant of the? I think they because they, you know, they have adapted to warm water since the last ice age, and so nature has selected naturally for a species or a strain of fish which is suited to this habitat, um, to a warm water habitat. So. What about Atlantic salmon over in Europe? It's pretty interesting when you look at the DNA on the salmon, and you know there are some differences between North American Atlantic salmon and European Atlantic salmon. And you know we can we can look at it at the the point of counting alleles on the DNA helix and know that there are differences. Whether or not that impacts behavior, I think is an interesting question. And some of the rivers in the southern part of the European range, um, which are in northern Spain. I would guess, I've not been there and fished there, but I would guess that some of those fish are very well adapted to warmer water. Whereas if you went up to, say, northern Norway or the north coast of the Kola, if those, uh, you know, if the water temperatures hit low 70s up there, I would think it's pretty much game over as far as the fishing goes. Can you, can you just go ahead and break that down into really simplistic terms? Yeah, you bet. So DNA is, uh, is what makes us who we are. And they can analyze the difference in the DNA, I guess you would call them molecules, I'm not a biologist. And they can see differences between European Atlantic salmon and uh, North American or Canadian Atlantic salmon. And I wrote an article once about this. The, uh, the salmon in Europe don't take dry flies particularly well outside of Russia. So the question is, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy because nobody tries dry flies? You know, and if you don't try them, of course, they're not going to work. Or is there a genetic difference between their fish and our fish, which makes our fish take dry flies pretty nicely? Could it be that our fish take dry flies because they are more adapted to the warmer weather? And the absolutely. Warmer water, and therefore, yeah. it speeds up their metabolism? It could, absolutely. Yeah, it could also be that our rivers are a little shallower mm-hmm. and they're more conducive to dry fly fishing. Now, in the steelhead world, the longer that a juvenile steelhead stays in the river system, the more, the more likely it's going to get used to taking topwater, you know, natural right. insects off the top. So what about in the Atlantic salmon world? How long do they stay in the system before they do migrate back to the ocean? In the southern part of the range, they spend a shorter time in the river before they head back out because the growing cycle in the summertime is longer. Right. So they can put on the necessary weight, grow to the, nor- the necessary size, and Sooner. then shoot out. But doesn't that make sense then? Could it be that they're oh, less, yeah. less prone to taking dry flies because they're in the river system for less time? For less time. Eating natural dry flies? Absolutely. Yeah, it does make sense. Okay, that's um, interesting. It's going to require lots of fishing by you and me to, to test it out. So. Oh, uh, ho- someone's got to do I it. Ho- I hope you're ready for that. I'm ready. 
let's talk a little bit about open ocean mm -hmm. because in 1948 they didn't know where these fish were going right. in the open ocean. That's right. Do we uh, know now where they are? Yeah, we, we really do. We have a pretty darn good idea. Can you tell me? Uh, yeah, they go to um, one-year salmon, which are called grills. One, they spend one winter at sea, so they're called a one-sea winter fish. And uh, they spend their time probably in and around Newfoundland. Okay. So uh, Grand Banks, maybe Flemish Cap. Uh, the multi-sea winter fish, the fish that go out to the ocean and spend two winters or more, will head up to the Davis Strait, which is between Baffin Island and the west coast of Greenland. And they'll make a tour up there and then come down the uh, west coast of Greenland, feeding late in the season, and then over winter in the South Labrador Sea. And Before. this is North American salmon? These are North American salmon, yeah. What about the European salmon? European salmon, uh, I, I'm, I don't know that they have quite as good an idea as we do about our fish. And some of the European salmon do go to Greenland. There's no question about it. I think some of the Icelandic fish spend more time in the Erminger Sea, which is on the east coast of Greenland. Um, and some of the mainland European salmon spend quite a bit of time around the Faroe Islands. But I don't think they have quite as, uh, quite as good an idea as to where those fish go. But How do they get data for, for these fish? Uh, ocean sampling. Okay. Um, so trawling in the ocean, catching salmon. And it was really the commercial guys that found it. So commercial guys were still fishing for them. And uh, they hone in on the fish population pretty well. So, I bet, yeah. yeah. It's 1960s, I think, was when they really figured it out. That would explain why in the 1950s they hadn't quite yep. pinpointed it. Now, what about this thyroxine? Thyroxine. I know that when we had spoke on the phone, and thank you, you gave me three hours, and I yep. learned so much in three hours. But you had said that scientific data had basically shown you to be able to read exactly when a fish was going to be willing to take. And you sent me pretty, that data. Pretty, pretty close, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you break that down for me? Yeah, you bet. Thyroxine is an interesting hormone. It's a product of the thyroid gland. It is responsible for... Things like elevate, uh, respiration, alertness levels, and... Do we have it? We do. It's a fairly, what I would call, expensive hormone in the sense that if you had it, if you had an elevated level of that stuff all the time, and you were in a, an, an Atlantic salmon in a river, you would be burning fat reserves. Mm. And because you're, fat, you're not coming into the river to feed, you're coming into the river to spawn. So what they do is when they need a, when they get a, an increase of flow in, in, in their faces in the river, or they're coming into the river and they're actively migrating, they need to be alert. Uh, their metabolism needs to have an increase um, in activity levels. So their thyroxine levels tend to be elevated when they're actively migrating up the river. When they get to a holding pool like the one that we're fishing today, and they may have been parked here for a couple of months, they will shut down or slow down that thyroxine levels. The, their thyroid gen will, will actually slow down uh, the amount of thyroxine that's pushed into their bloodstream. Until they start to spawn? Yeah, exactly. But the point being that if they're going to come and hang out in a pool and they maintain elevated levels of thyroxine, they would burn a lot of their fat reserves. Of so they kind of go into a semi-hibernating state in order to conserve energy. Typically, when you get a nice push of water, they'll become excited again. Uh, they'll start to think about migrating up the river. So there was a really elegant study that was done on this, and uh, they took some wild Atlantic salmon, extracted blood from them right after they caught them in a weir, 
and they analyzed them on a host of scales, one of which was thyroxine. Then they put them in a fish hatchery. They analyzed them again after they'd been sitting there for two or three months. So extracting blood from the fish, analyzed doing the same tests. And they had extremely depressed levels of mm. thyroxine. And then they took it to the next level and they increased the amount of water coming through the hatchery to see if they could artificially raise the levels of thyroxine in the fish and they were able to do so. So they diverted more water through, through the fish tank that the fish were in, um, increased the flow going right in their face, and then took a reading again. I'm gonna, mm -hmm. I'm gonna play devil's advocate here. Well, Waddington says that by having an increase in water temperature, therefore yeah. stirs the fish, and yeah. a stirred fish yeah. is why they tend to bite. Could that be because of these thyroxine? I don't think so. I really don't. I think Waddington was, you know, was off the mark. And I think he was probably doing the best thing that he could do with the information that he had at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's been a lot of hard science and some pretty elegant studies that have been done since so he So what wrote. would it be about the increased water flow that would increase their hormone level? Um, it imitates a spate. So if you get a lot of rain and the water starts to come up, then the fish start to think about changing pools and moving up, moving up river. And so they get excited. I've seen this. And uh, so if you get a, a big push of water and the water comes up, you know, what we know from a lots of fishing is that when the water's coming up, we sometimes catch a few fish, but typically the best fishing is when the water hits coming the top down. and starts coming down. Why is that? Because it's the same with steelhead. I think it's because, um, first of all, the water can get dirty when it's coming up. So fish may hunker down if it's really dirty. You know, if you're talking steelhead and it's, you know, glacial silt, my guess it's not real comfortable for them. So they'll go hunker down, find a place where the water's a little cleaner. And they're also waiting for it to crest because the higher it is within reason, generally the easier it's going to be for them to migrate. So it's all based on migration and making sure that you have fish that are reasonably alert. Uh, you know, if you fish as you, you guide on the, on the Lower Dean River, so you know that, you know, fish that come, come uh, what is it, over the, I'm not fish there, but they come over the falls, mm -hmm. you know, those are super aggressive fish, I would imagine, just in from the ocean. If you fish for those same fish three months later, 150 miles upriver, and they've been sitting, totally different. sitting in the same pool for two or three months and hadn't moved, mm -hmm. it would be a totally different, it's, it would be like fishing for a totally different fish. That's why we call them stale fish. Stale fish. And that's what we got going on here. So how do you make a stale fish bite? Um, ethically. Ethically? Um, well, there's, you know, there's, there's lots of ways that people have done it historically, which I don't think are are ethical or kosher in today's world. You don't like dynamite these days? <laughs> they used to rock the pool. They used to throw stones at them. I know people who still do that. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think that's illegal in, in most places now, rocking the pool. There was an old video. We were talking about videos last night. Uh -huh. Do you remember uh, there was a certain video that was produced by 3M? Where, I spot him, I got him. I spot him, I got him. And, uh, you know, that caused a lot of consternation in the steelhead world. It and, did, yeah. uh, in the old days, if you read Secrets of the Salmon, which came out in the mid-1920s, uh, Hewitt used to go up into the, um, the top of a pool and start kicking dirt up, and the dirt would come over the fish. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was hoping to fool the fish into thinking that the water was coming up. Did it work? Um, and that's horrible, by the way. Yeah, well, that's terrible. But did it work? Um, I don't think so. 
and uh, I can't I can't remember what the results of that were. Um, I think I think fish are smarter than that. When jet boats uh, go by, I watch it all the time. Yeah, fish will start biting. Absolutely. And so, how does that relate to thyroxine? Well. Um, you take a fish that's settled into a lie for a few days, starts shutting down. All he has to do is make sure that a bear doesn't get him or an otter doesn't get him. And uh, then the water comes up, he starts to get excited, starts to move around, get a little twitchier. Um, his respiration rate goes up and he gets ready to migrate. If you run a fly in front of him right then and there, you're likely to get a, a take. In your uh, book you say there's three kinds of fish. Yeah, there's three kinds of fish, I think. Um, Taking fish? Uh, well, resident fish, uh, which are fish that have parked in a pool for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Would that be a stale fish? That would be a stale fish. Okay. Yeah. And uh, running fish, which are fish in the active, you know, that, it, they're, that are actively migrating up the river. And those are virtually uncatchable. So here's my definition of a, of a running fish. A fish that, if you were lucky enough to get a fly in front of a running fish, by the time you made a second cast, that fish is gone. Yeah. And uh, we see so, that on the Dean that close yeah, to the ocean. Yeah. So the odds of you actually getting a, uh, a fly in front of one of those fish, if, they're, if they don't hold even for a couple of minutes, pretty low. And then the third type is the resting fish. You know, and that's a fish that can be actively migrating, but he pulls into a lie or a pool and he's hanging out. And he's still, you can see him. I mean, if you get up high enough on any salmon or steelhead river, you can see the active fish. You know, they're moving around like this and checking stuff out like this. And you can take a look at stale fish, and it's like they're just parked on the bottom. And what are these fish that are jumping and driving us crazy? Uh, sometimes, you know, that's kind of the million-dollar question in salmon fishing. Why do they jump? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons that they jump. But well, I think one of the reasons is, you know, there's a fair number of salmon in this pool. If something touches their tail, as in another fish, I think they get spooked, they jump. Um, I think another reason that uh, fish move around quite a bit is I think they change their, uh, uh, they have a swim bladder, so they'll come up and gulp, gulp air to change um, based on the pressure system that they're, they're faced with, atmospheric pressure system. So they'll, um, they'll take on air to help them hold at a certain level in the water. It gives them vertical upracy, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so uh, I think there's many, many reasons. When you have very, very bright fish, um, the, the, the classic thinking has always been that they're jumping to get rid of sea lice. But um, some of these fish don't have sea lice. None of the, you know, most of these <laughs> fish don't have sea lice. So yeah. that is not the reason right now. So. Right. Now, some of them, we've caught a couple that have. Yep. And I'm just amazed that they still have that dark hue to their, to their flesh or to, yep. to their scales. Yeah. Do they change color as they enter a darker system? Um, you know, my guess is uh, that they've been hanging out in the estuary for quite a while. Oh, so uh, they're no longer <laughs> freshly minted coins from the North Atlantic. They've been hanging out in the estuary, darkening up, but because they haven't entered freshwater yet, they still have sea lice on Right, because the sea lice can't perish until they're in the freshwater. Right. So right, exactly. That makes sense. Um, okay, God, I've got so many questions for you. Barometer. Lots of theories on barometer. Lots of theories on barometer. Can you try to maybe simplify in a couple sentences how yeah. that would affect fishing? Um, if it affects fishing? I think it affects fishing in the sense that, well, first of all, fish are very attuned to it. Uh, they have a very sensitive instrument in their swim bladder, which can read the barometer with great accuracy. I think it's only important in terms of affecting water levels. So in other words, if, the, if you've got a plunging barometer, fish know that it's plunging, and it alerts them to the possibility that rain may be coming, which means the river may be rising. 
you know, I look at it as a straight water level issue. You know, if you get a plunging barometer and you get a big storm, storm coming through and your water levels come up, you can anticipate some fish going on the bite as that water starts to bump up. And then you can anticipate um, probably 80% of the fish that you catch will come once it crests and starts to fall. So to me, the barometer is really tied to river levels in terms of the moisture that you may be, you know, a storm may be dropping in the river. Are the Atlantic salmon part of the brown trout family? They certainly are. Well, or are brown trout part of the Atlantic salmon family? I think that's, that's up for debate. But they're both salmo. Uh, one's Salmo Truda, one's, other, one's Salmo Salar. So. so what's the difference between a sea run brown in South America and these Atlantic salmon? There is a genetic difference between the two, uh, no question about it. The classifications, you know, many of these fish have been reclassified within the last 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. Steelhead used to be, what, Salmo Gardnieri, something like that, and yeah. they're now Oncorhynchus mycus. Yeah. But in terms of their behavior and in terms of their... Um, you know, I find brown trout and salmon to be very similar in their behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of their fighting characteristics as a sport fisherman, I don't find that the, uh, the brown trout have quite the endurance that the salmon do. And uh, having caught, you know, probably a couple of dozen sea-run brown trouts in Tierra del Fuego. But they jump and they do a lot of the things, but they're not quite as, uh, not quite as hot as the salmon are when they're fresh. So. Now, with a brown trout, you can, I mean, we often fish these big, aggressive streamers for them and yep. we rake them back. Yep. Whereas the Atlantic salmon is famed for taking these small, delicate flies. It can be. It can be, absolutely. Um, In your opinion, how important, or what is the importance of the fly when it comes to Atlantic salmon fishing? Um, to me, I, I look at it as a pretty simple equation um, in that you can catch fish in low water on really big flies, mm-hmm. provided that really big fly is moving at a speed which is appropriate for something that big. So fly size has really nothing to do with the fish. It has everything to do with how fast it's moving. So if you want to fish fairly fast water with a small fly, you can catch fish with it, provided you slow it up to get that small fly to look realistic. And conversely, if you're fishing slower water and you fish a really big sun ray, you know, you're going to probably have to start stripping that thing to make it look realistic. Otherwise, it's going to look, you know, anything that's that big when it gets into relatively slack water can presumably locomote pretty, uh, pretty well. So you're going to have to imitate that. I mean, these, these are not animals that uh, react logically. These are animals that react instinctively mm-hmm. to, um, to prey and intruders into their territory. So um, the more you can imitate that, I think the more success that you'll have. A very interesting blurb in your book was you said, ask a guy if his fly that's basically coming to its end of its swing or it's on the dangle yeah. and it's hanging on top of a white rock. Yeah. Ask him how fast that fly is moving. And if he says it's not, right. he's wrong. So say that you said the water was moving, what did you say? Seven? Oh, three miles an hour, something so like that. Three miles an hour, yeah. okay. So the water's moving three miles an hour, yeah. and that fly is maintaining some sort of movement over that rock. That yeah. means it's also moving three miles per hour. That's correct. Yeah. So what you had said, and this really helped change my fishing. If I'm fishing really fast water, and I'm fishing something that's this big, yeah. naturally, or in the, you know, in the natural world, could an animal or some sort of insect move that fast? Could it move three miles? Right. And it really forced me to to regulate my fly speed mm-hmm. by what size of fly I was fishing because of that blurb. Right. Is there anything else that I should know about that? 
Um, I don't think so. I think that's, you know, what, what I try to encourage people to do is to think like a fish and to think like a small bait fish. In other words, think, you know, if you were this big, you know, very, very small fly, mm -hmm. um, is it likely that you're going to be able to hold a position in a four-mile-an-hour current? Probably not. You know, mm -hmm. a small critter about that big is most likely going to be carried away in a four-mile-an-hour current. So if you want to fish it realistically, then you're going to have to imitate that effect. Or you can go to a bigger fly and fish it as you were. Are we trying to fish realistically, or are we trying to give them something that's just going to induce a reaction? I think both. You know, if you're, if you're fishing a big river in early season with lots of water and you're using a very small fly, in order to get it to fish realistically, it's gonna, you're going to have to do a lot of mending and slowing it down. And that's not really the best way to cover a big river early in the season. So you would be, you know, probably better advised to pick a bigger fly and move it appropriately. I think the big departure here is that if you look in the old books, you know, they, they really related fly size to water temperature. Yeah, they did. And, you know, that's not necessarily helpful. In other words, if it's 48 degrees, I think, you know, I should be fishing a, a size 2. That looks like an elver from the ocean yeah, because yeah. the water temperature in the ocean shows which life cycle or what right. size the fish is, the bait fish is in the life cycle, right. et cetera. So can we talk about that? Because that's something that I've got a note here about. Sure. You know, the guys were saying, or back in the early 1900s, mid-1900s, they were saying that in the colder water, when the fish were out in the ocean, they assumed that the eels were a mature or a larger size profile. Right. Whereas in the, in the warmer months or the summer months, as the water column heated up in the ocean, it was a different stage of the life cycle of these elvers, and they were actually um, a smaller profile, which is what will be the instinctual bite for the fish in the rivers. Is that true? Um, I think it would be very hard to prove or disprove that. Um, what do they eat in the ocean? Uh, they eat sand eels. Um, capelin is a big diet, big part of the diet for multi-sea winter fish. I think it's about 85% of what they eat. I think it depends on how long you know you think, as an angler, they retain a memory of what they were eating in the ocean. And, uh, you know, so the million-dollar question is, well, why do they take dry flies? You know, a free-floating dry fly, because presumably they're not eating insects in the North Atlantic. I think, you know, generally the simplest explanation to a conundrum is usually the correct one. And uh, so in this case, the simplest explanation is they retain the memory of having fed upon thousands and thousands of insects when they were juvenile fish in the river. Why else would they take a dry fly? To me, it's, uh, it's really not that big of a mystery. And in terms of fish that are just migrating into the ocean, we definitely know that patterns like a sunray imitate capelin exceptionally well. And what we're not trying to do is um, get them to feed, but we are trying to get them to react to something in the surface as a fish looking up to uh, not think about it, but simply to, uh, to react as a predator reacts. Mm -hmm. And a predator pursues prey, if only to investigate the nature of the opportunity. It's just what they do. I mean, it's like your cat. If you have a cat and you, you, you throw some catnip out onto the, uh, the floor and you pull the catnip back across, you, back across the floor, you know, a lot of times the cat will look at it and go, that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so you throw it out there again, twitch it a couple of times, get the, the cat's attention, and then you start pulling it across the floor as fast as you can. And the cat jumps off the couch onto the catnip and then goes, well, now what do I do? And you just flip that switch right. of a predator. 
Like and running from a bear. Like running from a bear. So that's really what we're trying to do is flip that switch and get them to react to something that is natural and something that they've seen before. Do their stomachs atrophy when they're in the fresh water? Almost, almost certainly, yes. How long can they go without eating for? A long time. And, Up to a year? Uh, or more, yeah. Wow. Yeah, very, very long time. So there's a strain of fish in Russia called the Osanka. Uh-huh, yeah. And uh, they come in in September but don't spawn in October or early November. And they go an entire year. So they wouldn't spawn for about 13 months. They would spend two winters in the river after they have entered the river. Hmm. And I, don't, I have never heard a good explanation of why Mother Nature thought up this adaptation, but um, perhaps they want to get ahead of next year's fish you know, before they come in. But they have to put on a tremendous amount of weight. Yeah, how much of their fat reserves do they use up in there? Probably, boy, you know, tough to say, but, you know, you'd have to go measure a, an Osaka and then measure it as a Celt 18 months later. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot, you know, they might, they might be losing 40% of their body weight. But they're a prized game fish because when they come in, they're fatter than your average salmon. I bet, yeah. They're just all fat and muscle, you know, little footballs. And the, um, some of the Scottish salmon, I think, do the same thing. They come in in uh, early fall, but don't spawn, and spend an entire uh, winter spawning 12, 13 months later. Fascinating. It is very unique. I mean, uh, Mother Nature's got a lot of strategies for perpetuating species. With steelhead, provided there's enough food in in the river, a steelhead, a male steelhead, does not need to leave the river as a juvenile to go to the ocean to feed. And it can remain in the system. Right. Whereas the females tend to have to go back because to the ocean because there's they need to have enough fat for their eggs. Right. So what we have is we have these resident trout mm-hmm. that basically are steelhead that just never left. Right. And they can still fertilize an adult female steelhead's right. eggs. In the Atlantic salmon world, these fish who don't leave, I mean, I mean, do they leave? I think they leave. Um, you know, I think the the closest um, situation for the Atlantic salmon would be. Par, which are sexually mature. It's precocious males. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're called precocious males. Um, they're sexually mature, so a par is a small juvenile salmon that's not been to the ocean. And I look at it as, as an insurance policy. You know, if there are not enough guys around to get it done, adult seagoing males, uh, the par can fertilize eggs. Mother and nature. Mother nature. So lots of backup insurance policy in mother nature. Thank God, because we really need it right now. Yeah, we do. Is it true that an Atlantic salmon's lateral line is comprised of magnetic particles that keep it in position with the Earth's magnetic field? It has magnetite um, in its lateral line, also in its brain. It allows it to orient to magnetic north. Um, Magnetic north is uh, notoriously inaccurate. In this part of the world, I think it's about 13 degrees off of true north due to uh, magnetic fields. So I think it gives them a useful way of navigating, but there are more accurate ways for it to navigate. And it's, I think salmon, steelhead, any ocean-going fish, they generally have, I, I look at them as, as like a, a naval ship with, that has more than one way of finding where it is in the ocean. How else does it find its way? Um, It also finds its way, a very interesting study that was done on fish taking a sextant-like reading off of the sun. 
Um, so that the oh, sun, yeah, the sun penetrates a thin membrane between their eyes and reflects off of two plates on either side of their brain called the pineal plates. And uh, they're able to determine uh, very accurately the angle of the sun when they're in the North Atlantic. And what's interesting about it is their ability to, to see the light of the sun uh, they only use polarized light, and polarized light is the only type of light that penetrates cloud, cloud cover. And uh, if you think about the weather in northern climates, uh, there's a lot of cloud cover. So North Atlantic is probably cloudy more times than not. So this is a system that allows them to navigate with a reasonable degree of accuracy very accurately in any weather. And it also allows them to measure the length of the photo period, which is their, the length of their daily exposure to sunlight, which gives them a calendar. And, it's amazing. Uh, that so they know so what time of year it is. And then they're genetically determined, uh, or not determined, I think that's kind of a, a harsh word, but they're, um, because a lot of their survival strategies are immensely flexible. But some fish are more likely to become sexually mature after one winter at sea. Others are more programmed or more likely to spend more time than that out in the ocean. So the length of the photo period is pretty darn important because it's related to um, the rate at which they become sexually mature, which has to do with when they return to the rivers. That ability to not only determine the precise point of the sun in the sky, but also to determine the length of the photo period is, is directly linked to their sexual maturation as well as their positioning. So I think of it kind of like... That's what he was talking about with the color change as far yeah. as their sexual maturation goes. Right. So I think, it's, uh, you know, I, I think of it like GPS. It's a salmon's version of GPS or steel. I'm assuming seal have, have the same thing. Sounds like it. And um, so these are, you know, immensely complicated little creatures. You know, when you hold one of these in your hand, and, uh, you know, this is a fish that has onboard GPS that has a compass inside of its body, which allows it to orient to magnetic north. And I think the research is, is pretty convincing that they also have a genetic roadmap, which tells them where to go. So one of the questions I asked in the salmon book was, we've got a pretty good idea how salmon find their way back to rivers. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense that a fish would know how to get back to a place that it had already been. But the real question for me is, how do they know where to go out in the ocean when they're little guys migrating out and they've never been there before? Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like butterflies migrating to Mexico. How do they know where to go in, Me in Mexico if they've never been there before? And most of them haven't. So um, the evidence seems to be that, genetically speaking, from one generation of fish to the next, that there is an instinct to migrate to a very specific place in the ocean, namely the feeding grounds. And most of the studies have been done on birds. And the most interesting one was one that was done in the journal Nature. They took a European black cat from England, and they took another uh, population of European black cat, which is a, a small bird, from the Mediterranean. And they took two captive populations from each of these two places and brought them to Germany. And then they, 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 they raised them for two successive generations, keeping them separate. Mediterranean birds over here, English birds over here. And then they released the grandchildren. And the grandchildren of the English birds went to England. 
and the grandchildren of the Mediterranean birds went, you guessed it, to the Mediterranean. So how did they know two generations later where to go? And, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that that is genetic information. Yeah. It's a genetic map of some sort, or if you want to be perhaps more precise about it, it is an overwhelming instinct to migrate in a certain direction to a certain place. And, uh, you know, it's not a roadmap by AAA, mm -hmm. but it's the closest thing to it in Mother Nature. So um, that argues, I think... You know, if you can if you can apply that type of thinking, we haven't done similar studies on fish. Very difficult to duplicate, but I think it argues for gen what I would call genetic integrity, in the sense that if you start messing around with populations of fish that have become adapted to a to a river since the last ice age, then you could potentially scramble that information right. when you're passing it on to the next generation of fish such that they don't know where to go when they get out into the ocean. So um, genetic pollution, mixing fish, introducing fish from um, one river system and mixing populations or escaped aquaculture fish interbreeding with wild fish, you're compromising the integrity of that um, genetic message which has been passed on for multiple generations. And I think it's exceptionally likely that that's how salmon migrate. Um, combination of all three of those factors. So very important to, uh, to keep strains of fish wherever they are from mixing with other strains of fish. This is super interesting. One of the things that really fascinates me about New Brunswick is its rich history and basically what was brought over from Europe in the 1800s. What are your thoughts on this? I, I think their tradition here is fairly unique in that if you go to um, the old country, Scotland, then you know most people are fishing two-handed rods. If you come to New Brunswick, most people are fishing single-handed rods. So something happened along the way. And when they first came to, say, Newfoundland, uh, it was mostly British officers or, you know, British merchant marine, the officers in a Brit British merchant marine who were there to get cod and presumably timber. And while the, uh, the workers were getting the cod and timber, they would go salmon fishing. And, uh, and they all used gut-eyed hooks in those days, and they would leave flies for the, the people that lived there. The gut-eye would rot, and so they started putting a half hitch on the eye of the hook because they had no way of attaching their leader to the fly. And the riffling hitch was born. By accident, they discovered that it worked out very, very nicely. Yeah, because and it it just it makes the hook ride different in the water, it and does. it disturbs the water. Right? Correct. Yeah, okay. it produces a little V wake on there. You know, from a historical, from a tackle perspective, you know, how did uh, the single-handed rod sort of take over from the two-handed rod in this part of the world? And I think that's a really good, interesting question. Um, is it because of Lee Wolf? I think you, I think it is. Yeah. Um, if you look at you know certainly on this river, the the most important figure on this river was uh, probably Ted Williams, the great baseball player for the Boston Red Sox. Right. And uh, he had a camp on this river for decades. And uh, I'm guessing, you know, I may be shot for saying this, but I'm guessing that if Ted Williams was a big advocate of 14 and 15 foot rods, that we would be seeing more people fishing those. I couldn't agree with you more. Something that's very interesting to me is, is and I, I also have to be careful here because I don't want to offend anybody, but... A lot of the people I fished with out east yeah. 
I'll ask them, why do I cast that way? Why do I use this fly? Why do I use that angle? Why am I doing these presentations? Right. And the answer is, well, it's just because it's how we do it. Right. And my question is, are we so fixated on tradition that now at this point we no longer even know why it was originally tradition? I think that's definitely part of it, yeah. Absolutely. So do you um, think you know, that one it's... Of the, one of the sort of watershed moments for me was asking a guide who had guided on a, on a salmon river here in Canada what new technique um, had revolutionized the fishing in the last 50 years of guiding on that river. And he said, well, no new techniques. We fish the same way now that we fished 50 years ago, but we now we have the outboard engines and we don't have to pole anymore. Right. And, um, you know, that's fairly revealing. So tradition is both a wonderful thing in that it keeps... The, the way we have been doing things alive, right. which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But sometimes it, you need somebody to think and approach the problem from a slightly different angle. In Atlantic salmon fishing, it's really been the Scandinavians that have done this. And I think I said to you before that I see the Scandinavians as the, the steelheaders of the Atlantic salmon world. That's right, yeah. And they didn't have a tradition that locked them into a way of doing things. And so they had ish, you know, they had a problem and they thought logically how to solve that problem. And then uh, they traveled the world as Vikings do and applied their techniques and their tactics to other areas and did very, very well. And then people in Scotland said, you know, boy, these Scandinavians are doing pretty darn well on our own rivers. So, you know, let's take a page out of their book. And when I first, you know, when I was getting as a young man getting going in salmon fishing, I really looked to steelheaders uh, because steelheaders also not bound by tradition in many respects. That's right. And Do you think that's just because we don't have it? I mean, our oh, tradition... Oh, I think the tradition is there. But it didn't start to the 30s, really. Yep. It's not as old, but it's definitely there. But a lot of the early tradition came from Atlantic salmon fishing. So they, you know, they, they looked to what precedent there was. Um, but if you're a student of angling history, you know, the, the, the history of steelhead fishing is u uniquely its own. How important do you think the role of tradition is here in New Brunswick? I think the role of tradition is, is central to knowing who you are. You have to know where you come from in order to know who you are. And I think it's also important to know uh, what the traditions are to provide you something that you can shoot off from if you want to try something different. And so it's, an, it's a really important foundation. The other issue is, you know, if you step into a, a river where a fly or a technique has caught not only tens of thousands of salmon, but hundreds of thousands of salmon, it behooves you to tr at least try it. You know, I mean, it's worked over and over and over again. Don't try and reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. But if it's not working, um, you know, and you are a, a well-traveled angler, maybe then it is a good idea to try something different. Uh, what's always struck me as curious is the riffling hitch is not used very much in New Brunswick or in Quebec or Nova Scotia. And if you travel to Newfoundland and Labrador and you're fishing a wet fly, everybody fishes the hitch. They don't even fish, you know, typically don't fish a standard wet fly swing. So are the, uh, did the fish around here just not get the memo that the riffling hitch works? Or is it tradition that dictates that, you know, we don't fish the riffling hitch here? And so that's an example of trying something that um, works exceptionally well in one area, 
and bringing it to a new fishery. And I think it's important when you try something new to give it a fair shake. In other words, don't go through the pool 12 times, catch nothing and go, oh, well, I'll try something different and expect it to work miracles. It's probably not going to happen that way. What I mean by giving it a fair shake is when the fishing's good, then uh, try the hitch. See how it works on your, on your home water. If you don't typically fish dry flies, try a dry fly and give it a fair shake. Try it in water temperatures that are conducive to good dry fly fishing or good hitch fishing. And so I think tradition is both important in terms of knowing you know, what works in a given fishing situation, but it shouldn't bind you from thinking blindly like that tradition is the only way to do it, the traditional techniques. Because one of the most interesting and fascinating things about fly fishing is traveling and seeing how people fish for Atlantic salmon or fish for steelhead in different locales and then bringing back some of those techniques and applying it to a fishery that you're more familiar with. And evolution. And evolution. And that's how we learn. And, you know, when I first showed, uh, along with many others, tube flies to some of the, the guides that I know in Quebec, they were reasonably horrified. Yeah, and, I remember. Uh, and these days, uh, you know, they fish tube flies whenever the water's up, um, and even when it's not, in many cases. So, you know, there's, it, it's like anything new. It kind of goes through three stages. You know, the first stage, it's, um, it's generally ridiculed. The second stage, it's usually violently opposed. And then the third stage, sort of 10 years down the road, yeah, we, we've been doing that for 10 years now. Yeah, I've seen that firsthand. Yeah. Even in the Great Lakes system, trying yeah. to bring spay fishing and swinging streamers yeah. over. Yeah. I remember being ridiculed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. So my last two things I'm going to hit you with are your tennis analogy. Are you mm. shy to talk about that? Not at all. Okay. No. When we were on the phone, you were so helpful and you gave me this wonderful analogy, the tennis analogy. Mm -hmm. And I have told so many people <laughs> oh, <laughs> this dear. analogy. It's okay, yeah. I left your name off of it. But I wanted to chat with you about it now that I've yeah. got you here and we're face to face. Do you want to elaborate? Yeah, you bet. Um, so for those that don't play tennis, tennis has got a net and it's set at a certain height. And uh, if, it's, if you lower the net, it makes it easier to get your ball in the court. If you raise the net, then it makes the game more difficult. But whatever level you decide to set your net at, then it's pretty much how you play the game. You've got the inside, inside and outside the court, and then you've got the net at a fixed level. So how does that apply to fishing? Uh, well, no net would be putting a gill net in the river and taking the entire run. And uh, raising the net to a certain height of difficulty, if you will, would be the equivalent of, say, fly fishing. You know, instead of using an, a gill net as opposed to a tennis net to net every fish that comes into the river, well, well, we'll just give ourselves one fly and we'll try and get a fish to, to take it. So we've made the game more difficult. And I think when you make the game more difficult, you, you make it more challenging. And when you make it more challenging, you also make it more rewarding. And so... There's all kinds of ways to, um, to frame and shape the game that is played. And bottom line, when we go home at night, if we don't catch anything, we still have a meal prepared for us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can go to Safeway or 
you know, go to the fishmonger and get a fish. So we don't really do this to put food on the table. We do it to, um, to frame a relationship with the outdoors that is to our liking. So if you have to positively catch a fish, oftentimes you can. And, uh, but it, it sometimes is more rewarding to, uh, to make it difficult for yourself and to make the fish come to your fly as opposed to uh, perhaps sticking the fly in front of the fish's face. So, you know, I'm not telling people how to fish. I'm just saying that um, what we do as a pastime is an elegant pastime. And there are more effective ways to catch fish than the way we do it. Spin fishing, bait fishing, is more effective than most fly fishing, you know, with the possible exception of dry fly fishing for trout, where they really truly are eating insects. Um, so it's not, a, uh, it's not a recipe, it's just a point of conversation and, uh, you know, a, a departure point for us to think about what we do out here. Lee Wolf had an interesting quote, um, which, which was that he felt that, uh, that salmon deserved the sanctuary of deep water. And what he meant by that was, you know, don't go down to the fish, let the fish come up to your fly, fish a floating line. If they don't come up and play with, with you on your floating line, then that's the end of the game. The bar is here, the net is up here. And, um, you know, don't lower, the, don't lower the height of the net. This is how we play the game. And I agree with much of that. The only thing I would say is, you know, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate with myself, is that there are times when getting down a little bit is appropriate. You know, if you go to the Gowler River in the first week of June, Been there. and the water is 42 degrees, mm -hmm. and it's just come out of the trees, if you fish a floating line, you're probably going to have casting practice that week. Yeah. And you need to get a, a fly down a little bit and slow it up, you know. And, uh, um, and the other thing that, you know, just to play devil's advocate with myself, is that fishing a, a big sunk fly which is what Waddington and Balfour Kinnear wrote about at such great length, is actually more difficult than fishing a floating fly line. Because you not only have, you've got water column to consider. Lonnie Waller did a whole piece on this with us. Yeah. He says, you can see your dry fly to correct it, yeah. but you can't see your sunk fly when you don't know what's going on. That's exactly wrong. right. And so it's, it's um, the other thing is, if you ask the average angler that's fishing a sink tip or a sinking line, how deep their fly is right now, eight or nine out of 10 have no clue. They don't know. They have no clue. Are you at 18 inches or are you down four feet? I don't know. They don't that's know. That's your answer. That's, that's typically your answer. Your good sunk line fishermen know exactly where it is. Right. And they also know what the orientation of the fly is. That's is it right. broadside or is it tail, tail on? Yeah. And, you know, so it's, it's an immensely skillful way to fish. I think the, you know, the answer to, you know, where's the net in, in sunk line fishing is knowing when to use it and when not to use it. And to not use it for 20 fish yeah. in a day. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm ready to get to work. <laughs> Topher, thank you so much. Really, My pleasure. Really, really, really appreciate that. My pleasure. All right. Let's get out of these bugs, let's shall get we? out of these bugs. Let me break this down for you because they're going to edit the shit out of me on this. Um, let's talk a little bit. And how are you doing with these flies? They are driving me crazy. They're bad. Pause. Sorry. 
I have totally got a bug in my eye. I literally can't even think of my own name right now. I'm, <laughs> they're like dive bombing my face.